Welcome back to Ask God 365, where we listen, learn, think, grow together. Today we will investigate 12 main activities of the Holy Spirit. We seek to answer the question, what are the 12 activities of the Holy Spirit? When we're dealing with the Holy Spirit, we're dealing with a person, a person that God has sent to make real in our experience the truth as it is in Christ. Let's go through some of the texts to show the activity of the Holy Spirit. Twelve is the number of the Christian church, and we will study twelve main activities of the Holy Spirit. And as we look at these texts, we will see clearly the very important part that the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation. Number one. At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we discover that the Holy Spirit was active in the work of creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here, right in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis, the second verse, we are told that the Holy Spirit was active in the creation of this world. Number two. Now let us see what part he had in the plan of salvation. In our list of activities, we see that he was active in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, verse 35, Mary has been approached by the angel and told that she is going to have a baby. It is puzzling to her because she is a virgin, so she says, How can this happen? And the angel answered and said unto her, Mary, The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. To explain how it all happened, Philippians 2 verse 6 says that Jesus was equal with God. But he did something. He emptied himself, and he gave up his very life to the Father, the chairman, the director of the plan of salvation. Then the Father took the life of Christ, now totally emptied of self, which means he gave up all his divine rights, all his divine prerogatives, voluntarily. He handed himself over to the Father, and the Father took the life of Christ and handed it over to the Holy Spirit, who was the active agent of God. The Holy Spirit brought Christ down and planted that divine life into the womb of Mary. This is the mystery but there, in that womb, humanity and divinity were united, and Christ now became qualified to be the Savior of all men. Number three, the Holy Spirit was active in the Incarnation, but that is not all. He played an active part in the mission of Christ on this earth. Having taken our humanity, Christ could do nothing of himself. He had to be totally controlled by the Spirit. 
there are texts that clearly bring this out. In Luke 4, Jesus returns back to his hometown of Nazareth. Outwardly, he was no different from any other human being. He looked just like one of them. He was the son of a carpenter. The people had heard about him because the news had spread to Nazareth. And when he came home, he went to the synagogue, and they placed in his hands a scroll in the book of Isaiah. He opened it and read. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, the Spirit, hath anointed me, or has set me aside, to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. All this Christ accomplished, but it was the Holy Spirit that worked in him. This is important because that same Spirit that fulfilled God's mission in Christ is made available to you and me, the very same Spirit. Verse 14 is an example of this. In the same chapter, Luke 4 deals with three temptations of Jesus Christ, which in a nutshell sum up up all the temptations that come to man. These three basic statements sum up the temptations that come to each one of us. They are, number one, the lust of the flesh, number two, the lust of the eyes, and number three, the pride of life. And these three temptations of Jesus fit into those categories. Luke 4.14 tells us what happened after Jesus had gained the victory over these temptations. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus did not conquer the devil in his own strength. It was through the power of the Spirit. Number four, the Holy Spirit is one who inspired the writers of the Bible. In 2 Peter 1.21 we read, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that same Spirit that moved the writers of the Bible must also illuminate us when we study Scripture. It is important that ministers get training and understand the original languages and get background material and study Old and New Testament. But when we come to the Word of God, whether we are trained or not trained, whether we are ministers or lay people, there's only one person who can guide us into truth. A knowledge of Greek and Hebrew is not enough. It is a useful tool, but it is the Spirit that must guide us into truth. It is a tragedy that the scholars of the Christian church are moving to a method where they depend on human rationale to discover truth. Human reason is important, but it must be subject to the Word of God. We may be living in a scientific age and the computer age, but God knew about science and computers long before we were born, even before we were created. He knows much more than we know, and when we get to heaven, we will be like dwarfs before the angels and others. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible writers, and he must also illuminate us. Number five, 
In John 16, 8, we are told that the Holy Spirit convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We cannot emphasize enough that it is not the work of man to convict people. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is witnessing. Witnessing. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Number six. The Holy Spirit attracts people to the gospel. He not only convicts people, but he draws people to the work of Jesus Christ. In the very first book of the Bible, we read that he was active in creation. Now, in the very last book, in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, we read, And the Spirit and the Bride say, the Bride is the people of God, being used by the Holy Spirit, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. God has given us the responsibility of witnessing the gospel. We witness and we tell people, Come and accept the gift. But it is the Holy Spirit that goes right deep into their conscience and says, Don't be a fool. Don't reject this invitation. He is the one who draws people to Jesus Christ. That is his work, and that is why witnessing is not left to the believer. It is left to the Holy Spirit to do his work in and through us. Number seven, to those who accept the gospel, those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the Holy Spirit internalizes that salvation. In other words, he brings about the new birth. The life that we received at our birth, our natural life, is the life of the flesh. It stands condemned. Flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. It does not qualify for heaven. That is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 3 through 8, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. The new birth is produced by the Holy Spirit. Number eight, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. He is the one who guides into truth. We must not rely on our unaided human minds, wonderful as they may be. We must depend upon scripture. We must ask God. In John 15, 26 and 27, Jesus repeats what he has said in John 14, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, and the Father is still the chairman, the coordinator, even the Spirit of truth, notice he is called the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit does not reveal things about himself. The work of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus Christ. He is to make the gospel real to our experience. And in verse 27, And you also shall bear witness, because you have seen from me from the beginning. Number nine. There are some who say that we do not believe in sanctification, 
but we are very strong believers in sanctification. However, we must be clear that sanctification is not a means of salvation. That is a heresy. Sanctification is the inevitable fruits of justification. It's not an option. The means of sanctification is not puffing up our willpower and trying to be good. The means of sanctification is the Holy Spirit. We cannot produce something that for us is impossible. Because we are sinners, we cannot save ourselves, and we cannot produce righteousness by trying. All that we can produce is self-righteousness, which in God's eyes is filthy rags. One of the three texts which clearly point out that the Holy Spirit is the means of our sanctification is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Two of these texts are from the Apostle Paul who believes in sanctification, but what he condemns is what we make sanctification meritorious. Sanctification is the fruits of justification. Never does it make any contribution towards justification. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace alone through faith. That is why we need to study the book of Galatians, because Galatians tells us of God's righteous indignation on the Judaizers who were adding works to justification by faith. The next text shows us the means of sanctification, the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, believers who have accepted Christ, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Notice, the Holy Spirit is the active agent of God in our sanctification. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2, Peter says the same thing. Here is he is addressing the Christians in the Middle East, and in verse 2 he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Here it is pointed out that one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify the believers who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The question of how he does it and what part we have to play in it is answered in the third text, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit. In other words, Christ today is represented by the Holy Spirit. Christ himself is in heaven, but the Spirit is here on planet Earth. We are living in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. And when he explains what kind of freedom is meant here, he's not talking about political or economic freedom in verse 18. But we all, believers, all of us, with open face. When Moses came down from the mountain and spoke to the Jews, they asked him to put a veil between them and him because of the glory of God was too much for them to bear. In Corinthians, Paul tells us that when we come to Christ, this veil is removed because there is no barrier 
between a holy God and sinful man in Jesus Christ. We open face. We come boldly to God, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. When we look in a mirror, we see ourselves. When we use the law as a mirror, we see our filth. But when we look at the mirror of Christ, when we look at ourselves in Christ, we don't see filth. We see righteousness, blamelessness, because that is what we are in Christ. At Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and spoke, and God spoke to Jesus from heaven, he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the book Desire of Ages, page 113, it says that this includes all humanity, and that's good news, because in Christ, God is well pleased with us. In him, we stand complete and perfect. As we look at ourselves, not through the law as the mirror, but through the mirror of Jesus Christ, beholding Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for the human race, for you and for me, something takes place within us. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. There is transformation of our characters to reflect the love and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the last part. It is the Spirit that reproduces the character of Christ in us. We can't do it. All we can do is hypocrisy. We are shams without the Holy Spirit. Point number 10. The Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts upon the church. One very clear text is, is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. When Christ went up to heaven, he bestowed gifts upon the church, some apostles, some prophets, some teachers and pastors, for the building up of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 tells us that the gifts of the Spirit are for the profit of the whole body. The church is the body of Christ, and every member of the body needs each other to grow and be established. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number 11. It is also a very important truth that it is the Holy Spirit who works in believers to witness Jesus Christ. Many say, I don't have the ability to witness like others, but many are by nature introverts who have fought against a call to the ministry for that very same reason. The thought of standing behind a pulpit and looking at those staring eyes is horrifying to many. The only reason anyone can do it is because they believe the calling is from God. God gives us the courage to face others. In Luke 24, 48 and 49, Jesus had a commission to the disciples who had the same problem that we have. He knew that they were not capable of fulfilling that commission, of taking that gospel to a hostile world. So in verses 48 and 49, he says, Do not begin your witnessing. Wait in the upper room until you receive power from on high. 
By power from on high, Jesus did not mean some influence, because in Acts 1 verse 8 we read, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit descends upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Number 12. The Holy Spirit is always with us to the end of the world to comfort and to help us in this wicked world of ours, in our witnessing, our Christian living, and the things that we have to face as believers. John 14, 16 through 18. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter. The word that Jesus used for comforter is parakletos, which means more than a comforter. It is somebody who is by your side, or in you to be a helper, your guide, your comforter, to be everything to you. So he is more than a comforter. Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit to be by your side, to be your parakletos, to be in you, to guide you, to help you, to strengthen you, direct you, and to comfort you. We human beings depend on each other for comfort, for being upheld, but there will come a time when we will have no other human beings to help us. We need to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit for that comfort. Our pastor, our church, our conference president may forsake us, but the Holy Spirit will never forsake us. That is why we need to know that He, the Holy Spirit, will be by our side. In verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, he's not something visible. He's a person, but he's a spirit, and he dwells in you. Neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. A better translation is, I will not leave you helpless. I will be with you till I come and take you home. We have seen that from the beginning of the plan of salvation to the end of all three members of the Godhead, we are involved. All three members of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. God doesn't say, I've saved you in Christ, and now I leave you the rest to you. From beginning to end, it is the work of God. We are simply tools, instruments in his hands. In Christ, God saved us, and through the Holy Spirit, that salvation is internalized. The crying need of the church and the people of God is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The church today, God's people today, stand challenged. The great pagan philosopher Nietzsche, who was the son of a Lutheran pastor, gave up Christianity and became an atheist. He was one of the greatest philosophers, and when addressing the Christian church, he said, If you expect me to believe in your Redeemer, you Christians will have to look a lot more redeemed. Only as we walk in the Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to control us, will that power be manifested. Without that, all 
that they will see is the fair showing of the flesh, which is worthless. Thank you for joining us and being part of the Ask God 365 podcast community. We value you and appreciate greatly the time you're spending with us today. Please share your comments and questions at askgod365.com. Listen, learn, think, grow together. Ask God 365 answers to life's difficult questions.